that? No, actually, when I look at you, it's Haley on the left and oh. Gavin on the right. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. <laughs> they show you the inverted one because that's the only way you can do your hair. And that's for Chris's sake, you know, he's always <laughs> spell everything. This number here. But, uh, yeah, there we go. I know we, we should always put ladies first anyway. <laughs> well, in this case, it also shines up with the order in which you should appear. So that's why we okay, want to do that. Good. Yeah, super. And Chris, are and, you Chris, are you, are you ditching the sunglasses? Hey, but Chris, are you gonna ditch the sunglasses? Uh, I can't see one way or the other. So no, um, it just, I just I just bear it makes it look better? like you're not really taking it. If you prefer, <laughs> I'd like to put on my sunglasses. I don't actually need them, but I would like to. So I don't think the glasses do much one way or the other, by the way, if you're just asking as you're looking in, the problem is you still, it's still dark on your eyes. So yeah, I don't, I think you um, might as well keep the glasses. It allows yeah, me to cool. see the screen better, believe it or not. Oh, bifocal sunglasses. Who knew? Just this. <laughs> so I don't know. Is that, is that glasses are better? Glasses are because you're squinting to when you don't. Yeah, I'll be on. squinting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you look uncomfortable. There's no point making the audience. Well, I'm always uncomfortable. uncomfortable, so there's that. Everybody. Welcome to another episode of Consultants Saying Things. I am Chris Lockhart, uh, joined today by Oliver Cronk, Wendy Keene, Phil Yanoff, and special guests, uh, Dr. Haley Dare and Gavin Richardson. Um, we've been having a conversation a couple of times, and it's come up in a couple of different contexts around this idea of mental resiliency and um, the psychology aspects of going with a career such as consulting, which can be you know, quite um, uh, full of pressure and uh, various choices that may or may not be at odds with your own internal uh, ethics and value systems. And so in the past, we've actually talked about these things from the perspective of our own histories, our own experiences and, and anecdotes, um, with always the caveat that you know we're not mental health professionals, we don't do this professionally. So take that with a grain of salt. I thought, and I think we all agreed, it might be a fantastic idea if we actually had actual professionals who do this for a living actually come on and, and help us talk some of these things through. Um, so as you can see, I'm working on my mental health uh, here um, and my resiliency. But, you know, Phil, I know we've talked about this a couple of times and, you know, always the, you know, why are we talking about this? You know, what what can people get out of this? Yeah, you said it so well earlier in, in pre-roll. I was wondering if you might give it a shot here with two minutes of what we're trying to do. Yeah, I think this matters, right? Because as a consultant, you've got your own life and it's got its own uncertainty wrapped up in it. But now you've got, you know, the uncertainty of your professional life on top of it and trying to balance it. And then your professional life includes not just coworkers, but clients and their demands. And you've got this whole physically demanding environment. You might not be waking up in your own bed. You travel and time zones and lots of things could be impacting the way 
you deal with the world. And I just think that building resilience is important. It's a valuable thing. And if you've got it, that means you wake up in the morning and you're ready to go to work, right? I mean, and if you don't have it, you know that you wake up and it's a drag and you are dreading the day because you don't have that energy that you thought you wanted to have. You don't have what you need to get going. So how can we be resilient in the face of adversity and uncertainty. And that's why I think we've got some folks in to help us figure that part out. Because I think the, here's the, you know, the bad news is, yeah, we've got some challenging jobs. Uh, the good news is there are tools out there to help us be better at this. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, you know, let's, let's, um, let's, let's get our experts um, on, <laughs> on role here. Um, uh, Haley, uh, welcome. Uh, Gavin, welcome. Um, you guys work for New York Quinty. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what you guys do? And then I wanted to sort of get your thoughts. I know you maybe have watched some of the stuff we've done in the past. Um, and yeah. <laughs> You may, you may be able to tell us where we're wrong. There's <laughs> one or two little ones that we picked up last time, but most of it was um, very straightforward. Um, Haley and I have been working together for seven years now, and for most of that time we've been doing advisory work, consulting, learning and development programs with both government departments and corporations. And we developed a client base that's pretty diverse. About three years ago, we realized that actually within those clients, we were only touching a very small fraction of their employee population. And so we set about digitizing what we do. And over the last three years, we've been building, um, essentially, it's a mental health and well-being portal that people, organizations can use on their, as an intranet site, a microsite on their intranet effectively. Um, it's cloud-based, it's externally hosted, but essentially it covers a massive range of learning and development within organizations. So it combines very compelling and dynamic e-learning journeys, which are animations, videos, quizzes, questionnaires, very interactive, an extensive resource library of digital documents, um, PDF one pages, templates, etc. But also overlaying that, what we are doing is a year-round set of events. And we're bringing experts in from Haley's networks, those true professional experts, to talk in the, comp- in, in the um, corporate and government environment. Why are we able to do that? Well, I'll pass over to Haley because she's got Almost, I say almost 30 years. I never go over 30 years and I never will. <laughs> almost 30 years as a consultant, clinical, and forensic psychologist. Yes, that's given my age away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I sometimes describe myself as an old bag, uh, but that's because I've worked in the uh, field of mental health for, for a long time. It's always been my passion. Um, and I've been very fortunate uh, to work with um, many of the world's experts. Uh, in fact, in my very early days, I um, was very fortunate to meet um, Professor Tim Beck, who very sadly passed away um, earlier this year. But um, I met him in my very early days and we then became um, lifelong friends, actually. Um, so um, I'm a... Con- Before you go <laughs> Tim Beck actually invented cognitive cognitive behavioral therapy. So he's he's the godfather of CBT. CBT, yes. Uh, and yes, you know, normally, normally we have to put a caveat on this that we, we are not experts, but here I think we can <laughs> say that we are experts, or at least we have experts here with us. And yeah, I mean that that's that's incredible, right? I mean, normally it's just us riffing on um, sort of things that we've seen and done. And, and here it is like, no, no, I've, you know, CBT, I've worked with the, I know a little bit about it. I worked with, <laughs> right? 
right? So yeah, we're best friends. <laughs> best friends. Yeah, we we went to the uh, to the theatre together in London. I most most of my books behind her are, are written little notes from him. So anyway, but I'm a consultant clinical psychologist. Uh, as Gavin said, I also worked extensively in the field of forensic psychology as well. Uh, so that's probably enough about me, but uh, and indeed about us. Um, but um, one of the key points I um, picked up there, Phil, that you spoke about was working in the field of uh, consultancy. And um, you spoke about there about uncertainty. Um, and one of the um, issues about working um, with uncertainty is actually um, the pressures it puts on our brain. Now, our brain finds it more challenging to deal with uncertainty than it does the worst case scenario. So when we are presented with difficult news, the worst case scenario, we're able to take on board that news. And once we've processed it, we can start to problem solve around it. We can start to deal with issues. But when we're dealing with uncertainty, part of our brain, uh, known as the amygdala, that's our brain's natural alarm center, it goes into overdrive and it releases cortisol, which is our neurotransmitter, which is involved in our survival mechanism. And it goes a bit into overdrive. And the problem with uncertainty is we don't quite know what challenges we're having to face. So it's much harder to prepare for things. So it makes um, things such as planning um, quite difficult. Um, it, we're not quite so able to think around how we might deal with issues. And so our brain goes a bit more into hypervigilance um, and we, become, we find things much more challenging. So that's one of the difficulties that as consultants, you're having to manage all the time. Haley, now, Haley what, what's, if you might, don't mind, what's the outcome of that? How does that manifest itself? Does that turn into anxiety or does that turn into, what, how do people react to that? biological thing going on in their brain? Well, essentially, it's more commonly known as stress, um, but it can manifest in a whole range of different ways. So some people might become quite irritable and snappy. Um, other people might become quite introverted. So they might shut down quite a bit. They might stop communicating with people around them. Other people might become quite angry. Um, so it can manifest in a whole range of different ways. It can have quite a physical effects. Uh, on our body. So we do know that it can be physically very detrimental to our physical health as well as our mental health. So there are lots of different ways in which it can start to manifest. Um, and we just need to start to become aware of that. But the good thing is there are things that we can do to manage it and to become aware of it. I think, sorry, if I can jump in here. It feels like that's compounded though as well by the fact that often consultants are dropped in in situations where perhaps they don't have all the background knowledge that perhaps sometimes the consulting firm is suggesting that maybe they they do have to the client <laughs> and so you know many many people suffer with imposter syndrome even when they're very experienced but when you've been dropped in the deep end as we were saying earlier when you've got an unfamiliar town that perhaps or city that you're working from that you've traveled to that's surely a yeah, talk, talk, perhaps talk to us, go and Hayley, a little bit about that imposter syndrome sort of piece and how, how, how that must be a factor as well in 
Yes, absolutely. And the thing here is we can all experience imposter syndrome. Um, I know we often talk about this syndrome, but it's actually to do with our self-esteem, our lack of confidence. Um, I know these days everybody likes to put it into the context of a syndrome, um, but it is about how it feeds into our um, sense of uh, achievement. Are we going to be able to complete that task to the best of our ability? And as you say, if we suddenly plunged into something and we don't know have we got all the tools the techniques we've got the team around us to help us achieve that um when we don't quite know whether we're in the full kind of picture we we fully know what we have to deal with then that can feed into those little self-doubts which we can all experience um so we don't it's not necessarily just confined to consultants um it can can affect any one of us including um psychologists so basically anyone who's human got it check <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Um, you, know, we, you know, we tend to put the lens of obviously consulting on on everything that we talk about. Is there anything about like that particular industry that you think might be, um, you know, more or less uh, stressful? I mean, we talked about uncertainty, but you know, that sort of attracts some people that you know like uncertainty that that, for lack of a better term, you know, perform well with uncertainty, right? That that people can take that in and use that as something to, to perform with. Is it just consulting? Maybe it's other industry. Maybe it's medicine. I don't. I, I don't know, right? Yeah, I think um, so. It takes a certain drive, so it's not just confined to consultants at all. Um, and um, many of us are particularly driven, uh, and so we like particularly pressured um, either jobs or environments in which to work. It won't suit everybody, um, and so it's really important that we start to become aware of what our um, traits are, what things um, work well for us, what our skills and our assets are. Um, so we need to become aware of those things that we're good at and those things we're not so good at. So certain professions um, will probably attract um, certain uh, particular with a certain skill set. Um, and it might be sometimes we have to do a trial and error. So sometimes we might try something and actually realize that's not quite the area for me. Or it might be that perhaps we are promoted into a position of management and then we realize, you know what, I'm not quite management material. That's okay. We just have to then work out what is the right professional skill set for us. And we, we've we've talked about this before, Wendy. I know you and I have talked about this around you know the the type A personality that is typical stereotype, right? Trope of a, a consultant is this guy or girl that is so driven, right? Uh, sort of like pushing other people out of the way to get to the top. You know, it seems like maybe the profession attracts people that. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a brain defect. Maybe we have like going <laughs> on up there. I, I really think it is, um, you know, to your point and in, in, in even Haley, what you're saying around the traits and the skills and the assets. I think people are attracted to that, you know, we've had podcasts with young consultants and we see those traits. We see that drive now where people in, in Haley, to your point about it's a little bit trial and error. Some people will keep thriving on this throughout their career, like some of us. And some people might say, you know what, this is not for me or I'm going to move into other things. What I think is also interesting is particularly in our digital world and our awareness around, you know, future of work, 
how the conditions of the consulting environment are actually going to shift. I just read a headline today from a really big firm on the uberification of consulting and allowing people to have you know, more control over their schedules, just as one, one example. Going on your brain defect point, though, after what Haley described as being some of the you know, anxiety and the stress, sort of, it does make me wonder whether some consultants perhaps in, in the process of dealing with that stress and, and anxiety almost turn off bits of, of their their system in a way and again this is where Haley's here to correct me and my my you know uh, mumbo jumbo I'm about to say but you know in order surely to deal with some of those stressful situations perhaps some undesirable behaviors can kind of result and we we we, we, we were talking about memes in another episode and some of the sociopathic sort of tendencies that kind of rather cavalier um Machiavellian sort of tendencies of certain consultants and maybe I'm just sort of hypothesis here I'll be really interested in Haley and Gavin's view maybe that's because they've almost had to deal with just dealing with that inner voice and they've had to silence that inner voice in a way that maybe then makes them behave in a way that other people look at and go wow that's not a very nice human being to have to interact with I think it, I'm going to relate it back to something we heard in the previous podcast that yep. Phil Phil actually said protecting the asset or not protecting the asset was the term, but we went on to talk, talk about protecting the asset. And I think most people ignore the fact that the asset we're talking about here is our brain. And our brains are all different. They may look the same if we took them out and put them on a the table, but actually they're all different. They've all got a different architecture and they've all got a different chemical balance and they've all got different electronic electrical signals going out throughout the brain so we're all different and i think there is probably a certain architecture that lends itself to consulting and it may be a to do with logic logical thinking there's a certain architecture that actually lends itself to being in the caring professions a certain architecture that lends itself to being and we develop these architectures from when we're born and our architecture develop all the way through our lives. As long as we continue learning, we're continually developing neural pathways in our brains regarding what we're learning and putting it into practice. And there was a piece that resonated again from the previous one where you said, Oliver, you really struggled four or five years ago when you went into a managerial role. When you look at that, your architecture wasn't ready for that role. You struggled because you didn't have the architecture to do it immediately, but you had to learn how to do it. And over a period of time, months, you became much more comfortable and effective because you, your architecture had actually grown in your brain to do that role. So the reason you were struggling was because your brain wasn't ready for it. But six months later, you talked it out. You'd learned how to do it. You became a lot more comfortable doing it. Your architecture had changed. And it's the same in anything new we learn. Well, now you're, you're challenging a sort of a long-held belief of mine that sometimes I flippantly say, you know, people don't change. They, they're fundamentally. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, so what you're suggesting, though, is that, you know, Oliver in that particular case had the ability to adapt and create a new or create new neural pathways and create a new uh, logical architecture in his brain that allowed him to deal with that new set of activities and the stresses and emotions and everything that go with it. Is, or or maybe I just made that up. Is that what I heard? That's oh, what I heard. Coming back, coming back to Haley's point, Oliver could have said, actually, this doesn't suit me. I'm going to go back and do something else. Mm. And that plays to the career choices you were asking about earlier, Chris. 
if Oliver hadn't adapted and moved into that role and grown into that role and changed his architecture, he might have gone, I'm going to do something else. And equally, there are people out there that probably want to be a consultant, coming to consulting at, in their 20s, and a year later goes, not for me, because they haven't got the architecture. And maybe as we get a little bit older, consultants drop out in the 30s or 40s because actually they've just had enough. It's time to move on and do something else and learn new skills somewhere else and develop their architecture in a different way. Okay, that's really, really interesting. And there's a couple of points then that I want to make that can validate that because I haven't just made that flip from individual contributor to man. I've also done the reverse. And actually coming to Tanium, I've actually kind of, I influence and I have virtual leadership, but I don't have a team anymore. And so actually the few months, the first few months at Tanium were really, really hard because I was then, you know, doing stuff myself about not delegating as much. And the other other point I'd make is, in consulting, senior hires, you know, you know, kind of industry hires, not you know, people in their 30s, 40s who had experience in particular industries or particular skill sets, the success rate for onboarding those into a um, major big four that I was working for at the time wasn't great. The tra- you know, there, there are a lot of people would maybe survive six months to a year and then they'd leave because they just could not adapt. And so that really speaks to, I think, how perhaps malleable or changeable that person was able to sort of, you know, adapt that situation for some people you're right it wasn't for them and so they they went back to end, end uh, you know industry roles again no i mean so that's that's an example of reacting to the situation are there you know for those people that find themselves in a situation um you know and are, are not looking at six months worth of adapting to a new role or something they're just in a situation what are some tools like phil i know you're you're deep into stoicism and and that those types of philosophies which we've talked about before as ways of uh, managing your career and stresses and things like that. You know, I, I mean, I don't know. Are there other, is that an appropriate tool? Are there other tools? What, what would you recommend to folks in terms of, I don't know, find a hobby, go on vacation? Uh, you know. <laughs> uh, shall, shall I go or shall you go? I, I think it, we, we talked about the architecture, but the, another part of our daily lives is the chemical balance in our brains. We've all got neurotransmitters or brain chemicals in our brains and our nervous system and our bodies that govern the way we feel. And when we talk about stress, it's cortisol. You've probably all heard of cortisol. But actually, there are other hormones and chemicals that we need to keep in balance. If cortisol, the stress hormone, goes too high, it pushes down the hormones that are associated with self-esteem, which is serotonin. It pushes down the hormones that are associated with pleasure, which is dopamine. And it pushes down oxytocin, which is relating to human bonding and relationships. So again, when when we get stressed and we tend to snap at people, it's because our stress levels have gone up. But at the same time, our human bonding relationship chemicals have gone down. So there's a counterbalance between the feel-good chemicals and those that put us at risk. I think there's a whole combination of things that um, you can do. And so one of the things we really advocate are making um, small changes. So, you know, 1% change every day as up to 37% every uh, across a year, um, because we all know everyone has very busy schedules. Um, so if you can make very small changes and start integrating them into your daily um, regime, and we what we do is focus very much on um, trying to, um, keep that we focus on seven of these key neurotransmitters. 
that that is a way of starting to um, build up your resilience and um, really focus on 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 mental hygiene. So we all focus on physical hygiene. So every day, everyone cleans their teeth, they shower, and they launder their clothes. But what we're not so good at doing is focusing very much on our mental hygiene, looking after our um, mental health every day. So by integrating small techniques every day into our um, daily regime, we're, we're protecting our mental health, we're restoring our mental health, but we're also building our resilience. Um, and by building our resilience, protecting our resilience, then when we're facing these challenges in the workplace or outside of the workplace, we're then better equipped to deal with life's challenges as they come along. So is there a pill? There's a formula. <laughs> there is a formula of how you do it. There, there are pills too, but we like to work on a huge big toolkit of things. Yeah. Um, and if you have a big, um, so I like to think of it as a psychological toolkit. And the more tools you have in your bag, um, then you can access those tools at all different times. So, for example, when you're on holiday, you might want to access different tools. When you're in the work uh, working week, um, then there might be different tools that you might use then. Um, when you're in the evening, you might want to use different tools then. But it is about building um, a, a set of tools and techniques that, that work for you and you can integrate them into your daily regime. So um, we tend to, one of the things we focus really heavily on is starting the day off in the right way. So um, one of the first things we talk about is, this will go down well, um, is keeping your, your mobile phone, first of all, out of the bedroom um, and not looking at it for the first 30 minutes, 45 minutes of the day. Um, so most, <laughs> yeah, you see, most people, when you Why? ask most people. Why? Why would I want right. to do that? Right. There's something we all experience. It's called sleep inertia. Sleep inertia is that grogginess that we all feel when we wake up. And some mornings we wake up and it lasts 10 minutes. Other mornings we wake up and an hour later we're still feeling groggy. It's called sleep inertia. And what happens? Okay, wait, I, want to I want to challenge you, Gavin, on that because, you know, I, I'm speaking for myself, but I leap straight out of bed and put my pants on like both legs at once. Right. Let, I'm ready to go. Let, let me tell you why your brain is not working fully, Chris. Whilst you're sleeping, all the blood. <laughs> wow, I've been wanting to do that for a long time. So <laughs> now finally someone's going to explain to him what's going on. From a medical perspective. All, <laughs> all the blood while you're sleeping goes to the back of your brain. And it takes about 30 minutes for the blood to replenish throughout your brain and reach your prefrontal cortex. Now, for the first 30 minutes every day, your amygdala, which is your brain's alarm system, is the, the one that stimulates... It's the lizard brain, right? Isn't that... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah. But it stimulates cortisol. Now, the problem you've got while your prefrontal cortex is still snoozing before it gets the blood is that the prefrontal cortex is your executive function, it's your rationale, it's your logic. So anything you feed into your brain during the first 30 minutes raises your cortisol levels in excess of where, where they may react to because your logical brain isn't working at that point in time. So what do you do for that? Coffee? So you switch so, off digital. Yeah. So what you have to do is you either have to get up earlier. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so the, yeah, the idea. Yeah. So the idea is is that you you go back to old fashioned alarm clocks. 
you don't have, you don't use your mobile phone as an alarm clock. Um, and you just allow your brain to have that. Just We're just talking about 30 minutes here um, to allow your brain to wake up fully. And then you can start accessing your phone and look at emails or you can start looking at social media, whatever else. But it's about priming your brain in the right way. You wouldn't wake up in the morning and start drinking a triple vodka. Well. Um, <laughs> um, so we wouldn't advocate that. So in the same way, we want to protect. And this is, it does go back to Phil's um, comment uh, from the previous podcast that you're doing about it's This is about protecting the most important asset you've got, and that's your brain. So um, by not looking at your mobile phone first thing in the morning, just 30 minutes, you're protecting your brain and you're allowing your brain to wake up naturally. Are there other activities or apps or, I don't know, exercises? I don't know, does stretching help? Like, I, like how do I, if I want to get yeah. it down yeah. to 30 minutes, I want to get it down to 15 minutes. Like, are there ways I can? There's three three further key things that we recommend first thing in the morning. One of them is exercise or activity or stretching or going for a walk. Use the first 30 minutes to go for a walk because what you're doing by going for a walk is you're stimulating a great cocktail or feel-good chemicals. You're getting endorphins, you're getting dopamine, you're burning up adrenaline. It's a good thing to do. So you use that first 30 minutes to go for a walk. Practice mindfulness. You're increasing GABA, which is to do with relaxation. So but in mindfulness, whether it's in the shower, drinking your mind and mindful cup of coffee, practice mindful for mindfulness first thing in the morning. The other thing that's absolutely key first thing in the morning is to get outside and get some daylight because daylight stimulates our serotonin levels and serotonin is our feel-good chemical. It's associated with self-esteem, self-confidence. And I can ask you a question, Chris. I bet it feels really good to be out in the sunshine on the beach, doesn't it? I got to tell you, I feel like Superman right now. Right, because you're getting a massive boost of serotonin right now because you're getting maximum daylight. There may be another reason there, there, Gavin. It could be, you know, the hydration as well. (laughs) but essentially outside finishing off that point outside you get at least 25 times more light exposure than you do in a very well-lit office on the beach where chris is it's likely he's getting about 200 to 250 times more light exposure than you will in a well-lit office lots of serotonin okay so that's that's all right so i get it there there are there's chemicals, right? It's not just about your attitude. There are things in your brain structurally, right? Um, and there are some things that we can do in the morning to sort of stimulate and prepare for the day. Um, you know, I think we talked about in previous episodes, right? And, uh, you know, ways in which of coping with um, stress that is already emergent, right? It's the middle of the day now. Um, I'm going from meeting to meeting. I'm really irritated and pissy because I haven't had my lunch or whatever the case may be. Um, what are some ways in which I need to deal with that after I'm already in the stressful situation? Okay, so there's a really simple technique, which whenever I talk about this, I can see the cynicism in people's face. And it's just something called diaphragmatic breathing. Um, But diaphragmatic breathing will, uh, and no matter how stressed, so if people are in the middle of a panic attack, this will um, stop a panic attack happening. So you can be in extreme forms of stress at the time, but diaphragmatic breathing is something that you can use 
as a preventative method, but also in the midst of extreme stress. And nobody need know that you're using it. So it's a really useful tool and technique um, to learn. There's lots of different ways you can learn it. Um, I teach a, what's known as a 448 technique. So you breathe in through your nose to the count of four. You hold your breath to the count of four. And then you breathe out slowly through your mouth to the count of eight. Now, the reason um, that we teach diaphragmatic breathing is it um, there's a there's a chemical change that happens in your body. So um, it, it basically reduces the amount of oxygen that you're taking into your um, body. Um, so there's a, the blood pH changes. It slows your heart rate down. It reduces your blood pressure. Um, there's huge health benefits, which you can um, Google about. Um, but it, it will reduce your cortisol levels. And um, just a few minutes of this will actually start to baseline your cortisol levels. So it's a really simple technique. Um, if you're sat in the middle of a meeting um, with you know live people, um, you can actually do this and nobody need know you're actually doing it. So you can you can do it anywhere. And it's a really simple technique. To, to use but as I say even if you're in the midst of a panic attack it's a technique to to be able to use and it will start to calm you down and um, stop you having that panic attack I mean from a stress point I mean the, the idea was how do I live a flourishing life that is one of the things that's kind of the hallmark of later stoicism right how can I flourish and in my life. And so they had lots to say about this kind of stuff. And, you know, if you're, you know, uh, Haley and Gavin here, we started with the idea of CBT, right? But, you know, a lot, if you, you can't open a CBT textbook without there being a quote from Epictetus occurring in the first couple of pages. <laughs> it's there every time, he's in every book. So, you know, of course, he, uh, Epictetus was really Albert Ellis's REBT, kind of started that bit off. And then Temkin comes, up, comes on and builds on uh, and makes CBT, right? So there, there's, there, it's everywhere. It's just kind of baked in that, look, I would like to lead a flourishing life. Now, the beauty you have when you've got Haley and Gavin and CBT is they took all these ideas and they said, well, let's go put it in a lab and let's measure this and see if it actually works for people and what works and what doesn't work and all of that kind of stuff. And I think that's kind of where we are with this right now. It's like, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm hoping to be in a state of ataraxia. Let me tell you, I'm still a struggler. But uh, the idea is what are there tools like this? And this is why we bring them on is to say, okay, let's give us some ideas of some things we can do. I, I, if I can, if you gave me the mic for a second, I would like to ask a question and on of them is that is, how do you help people assess what their state of resilience is, right? I mean, when it, I mean, how do you help them understand, you know, because when we're talking about this, when I feel like I'm talking about it, first, I got to realize I got a problem. And I, I mean, I might have all kinds of problems. How do I realize that resilience is one of those things I want to work on? What are, what do you see as presenting symptoms typically? Mm. Um. So there's, there's a couple of things that I just want to pick up on it. So first of all, um, what, one of the things, because with stoicism too, is about uh, that not all stress is bad. So um, first of all, um, it's really important to acknowledge the role of eudaimonic stress. So um, eudaimonic stress comes from the Greek word eudaimonia, which means flourishing. So there are certain types of stress which actually motivate us to perform at our very best. And um, as a society, we talk 
you know, we focus really heavily on the negative aspects of stress, but actually, um, and, and this is important, particularly with consultancy, that's what actually enables us to do our job well. Um, so it's important that we, we utilize stress to our advantage. What we don't want, and this um, then picks up a little bit more on your, your question really, is when stress starts to have that more negative impact on us. So um, that's when we start to see symptoms manifesting. Now, sometimes we can recognize it in ourselves. And that might be where we do start to notice, do you know what, I'm not quite myself. And that's where we start to become a bit snappy, a bit irritable. Or maybe it will take a partner or maybe somebody that we're working with and they'll say, do you know, Haley, you're really becoming quite irritable and snappy lately is there something going on um so it might hypothetically take... hypothetically someone might say that of course like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. um but um so sometimes we can we can just uh, uh, and it, it might take for us to have a little bit of time out we you know it might be when we're actually having a break from work or something that we start to reflect a little bit more on things like that. Um, But other times it might take for somebody around us. Now that could be a family member, a friend, or it could be actually one of our colleagues um, that starts to notice that perhaps they just notice we're not quite our uh, our normal selves and that's uh, we do we do an awful lot of work there about how to reach out to somebody in a compassionate way in a caring way and that's because we do care um just to sort of say do you know I don't think you, you quite see yourself lately is everything okay and it's about how to have those conversations and those conversations are so important it's about normalizing that that conversation how to reach out to somebody um, because it's not as easy as just saying, oh, here's a scale. Sometimes there are measures that we can use, but in everyday um, terms, it's, it's not as easy as that. Um, and it's it's generally just recognising the individual. You will know people that you work with. You know how they present day to day. And generally, you will pick up those close to you when you think things are start, starting to slip a little bit. I mean, Hayley, what you're referring to there as well, I, I think is also referred to as mental health first aid in some cases, isn't it? Is Because I, I think people have, people have helped me in the past who've been you know, available to talk to in the workplace. Either they've proactively said, oh, Oliver, I think, you know, think your behaviour's not quite normal, or they've just made themselves available and known that, you know, that their door is open to have a kind of conversation. And that's, I think, pretty powerful. But the other thing I was going to say to you just now is the tools and techniques are great. But for me, on my personal journey, the thing that made the biggest difference was recognising the triggers and knowing when I needed to use the tools. So you can learn about all the techniques and tools to you, you know, to, to the cows come home. But if you if you can't recognise it yourself, and then this kind of relates to what I was talking about, perhaps someone needs to tell you to help you recognise this. But I think it's that for me is is the vital first step in like going ah yeah I need to not react to this email with you know the response I'm typing now. I need to stop. I need to breathe. I need to do something different. That for me, for many years, was the biggest problem. That recognition piece. I, I think you're absolutely right, Holly. You know, one, one of the things that we've shared together is, is that you wear your hat and sleeve to a certain extent, and you recognise it. One of the fundamental problems across society is that people do not understand mental health. It's not been presented in a way that 
the normal everyday person can understand it. And that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to provide a common understanding and a shared language because those conversations happen when people have speak the same language and those conversations happen when people have the same understanding. Now, if, if we think about, if we think about dental hygiene, you know, we all know how to brush our teeth. We know why we brush our teeth. We know what to do. There's two reasons why. One, we know the consequences if we don't. Therefore, we do it twice a day. Secondly, we were taught to brush our teeth from a very young age. So by the time we were four or five or six, it was habitual. We do it every day regardless. We don't even think about it. Nobody taught me how to look at my mental hygiene when I was a kid. They taught me how to look after my teeth, but they didn't teach me how to look after my brain. And that fundamental understanding that we know how, what, and why to look after our teeth, people need to understand how, what, and why they need to look after the asset, which is their brain, because it is quite an important organ in our bodies. We've got to learn how to look after it better. And, and even worse, I guess, we've had things, we've had technology and gadgets like you were talking about the mobile phone just now come along that actually makes the mental health management situation work harder for an individual. I, I, you know, one of the things we talk about, Ollie, is that you know, technology has evolved a lot faster in the last 20 years than the human brain. It's really simple. The human brain has not evolved to deal with what we're dealing with today, or not the majority of human brains, obviously some very bright people out there that can just take it all in and live with it and understand it. But most people, you know, and it, it's, it's things like this we've been doing for two years now, seeing four faces, five faces in 2D, I'm multitasking right now. I'm thinking, I'm checking out faces, I'm seeing who's talking next. The human brain is not equipped to multitask as well as it is single task. Single tasking is a lot less stressful than multitasking. But actually, every time we sit in front of a screen, we're lucky today because we haven't got spreadsheets, we haven't got PowerPoint presentations, and we're not reading through Word documents. The human brain dealing with that multitude of data coming at it on a 2D screen, it's not evolved to be able to handle that without inducing stress. So, all right, I've got kind of one sort of last question uh, from a consulting perspective, which is, you know, historically it is, yes, yes, all of that is well and good. Of course, your brain's the number one asset, all these sorts of things. But that deck needs to be done by eight o'clock and I'm going to have a bunch of changes through the night. And if, you know, if you can't get it done and yet you can't take a flight until Friday night at 8 p.m. And I want you back here Sunday night because we got the, you know, in other words, there's, there's like a, a lip service or greenwashing or like there's there's some aspect of this which is like the big firms are like yes we care about our assets but they had better perform right <laughs> that sort of thing um how do we how do we deal with that or do we, is that just something we recognize that's part of this industry or, or related industry and you have to deal with the resiliency part of it to be able to handle that and be able to bounce back you need to be able to weave pieces into your everyday life that will keep your chemical balance in balance mm -hmm. because it's, it's like a you know our concentration levels are what, 45 minutes to an hour but yet we insist on having back-to-back -back meetings all day long so by if you, if you start at eight o'clock by 8 45 your brain's getting tired but you're expecting it to perform for another eight hours mm -hmm. i think it was mentioned last time i think wendy i think you mentioned that some of your some organization you're working with are doing 45 minute meetings rather than one hour meetings so those 45 minutes 
we don't have the transitions between meetings anymore where we walk from room to room and grab a coffee and we don't have that chat in the corridor about the weather or what you did last week or who's going out for a drink tonight. We need to actually go, right, we need breaks through the day. Even if it's only five minutes between meetings, we need to rebalance the chemistry because after an hour, our brain is getting tired. And some great research evidence out at the moment of back-to-back Zoom meetings for three hours and the colour changes in the brain regarding stress and other hormones. So it's about taking short breaks between meetings, having those transitions back that we used to have not doing back-to-back. It's about removing uncertainty. So, Chris, you mentioned on your last one that actually you come up Monday with a double-up meeting, treble-up meeting tentative. There's a whole lot of uncertainty around that. If you could sort your schedule out on the Friday, you'd probably have a lot more relaxing weekend. Plus, you'd arrive Monday morning knowing what your schedule looked like, so you've removed uncertainty. The other thing you guys mentioned, which is so important on the last one, boundaries. Yeah. Having boundaries between home life and work life. Having a lunch boundary, for example. This is my lunchtime. I'm going to take 30 minutes. I'm having those 30 minutes. I'm not working. Taking a bit of time out through the day just to give your brain that time to recover actually makes you a lot more productive because in meeting six at four o'clock, you've had five, 10, 15 minutes between the earlier meetings to refresh, to refresh, to replenish, to recharge. So your performance over that period throughout the day, you're going to be better rather than brain dead by meetings at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I think something that's really important to try and take on board is that actually the way that um, so many people are working at the moment with all this back-to-back and no breaks is actually productivity levels are dropping. And if you want productivity levels to increase, It is about putting in micro breaks. It is about taking care of yourself because if you don't take care of yourself, you will eventually break and you can't pour from an empty cup. So it's about how you weave into your daily routines, those tiny little things to improve your resilience and your mental health capacity. But it is about small breaks and that will increase your productivity. If you do what you were talking about on the last one where you're dipping into three meetings, you're not being productive in any of those meetings. Right. It sounds like to me, you know, the answer to the question then is, you know, the firm is not going to um, uh, tell you to go do those things or give you the leeway to go do that. You have to, you have to take that on yourself. You have to do a recognition, which is, you know, I need a break. I'm only going to schedule 45 minute meetings instead of hour long meetings and begin to do some of those things because otherwise you'll get lost in the machine. Uh, you know, you know, as, as much as the firms want to say, yes, our people are our number one asset. Um, it doesn't always work out, but uh, they take care of those assets. <laughs> So the assets got to take care of themselves, right? I guess, um, you know, listen, so we, we've talked for close to an hour on this, you know, uh, I, I'm always cognizant of making sure that we make good use of people's time. You know, uh, I kind of want to go with like last thoughts and we haven't heard from Wendy in gosh, 10 or 15 minutes. So, <laughs> well, I I'm taking away so many things from this, this conversation and I've loved the science and tools behind it. So maybe I'll just, um, 
Um, just this last point that that's made. Yes, I do think it is about the boundaries and, and creating the conditions that work for us. Um, but I also think there's a mindset shift here. Yes, the asset is the important thing. And from the consulting perspective, because I live this grind every day, but we have to understand that we can, it, there's, it's like a return on investment. It's a big picture. So allowing people to flourish and work in the ways at a, at a normal pace with the right balance throughout their life actually produces more productivity in the overall and i think that's a key mindset shift to have yeah i mean look i mean i think everyone's on this journey of enlightenment when it comes to looking after themselves and i think if i had this conversation five six years ago i was giving you very different answers it would be no, no it's all about work and the team needs to kind of work at 110 or 100 all the time and uh i think you know until you go on that journey of enlightenment and i think often it takes something going off the rails for that kind of be the wake-up call certainly was for me a few years ago anyway um no this is super important and i think there is a responsibility going back to your point chris and there's a responsibility of the firm to recognize that their assets are important but not just play lip service to that but actually put the right support i've touched on mental health first aiders but you know programs of support where 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 needed but also the individual responsibility it's a bit like health and safety you know, everyone needs to kind of be responsible for health and safety and that includes your own your own sort of you know, mental health and well-being so yeah i think that we're all on a journey i think um it's great to see it going into the you know the 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 dialogue, the dialogue that's happening now around this topic is just fantastic it's being far more normalized i think in the last couple of years perhaps in response to the pandemic and the fact that people have had to deal with you know the uncertainty that we started talking about at the beginning but yeah, I'm really positive. I, th I think I see things improving uh, on this topic. Uh, but I think, yeah, it does come down to like taking accountability for it and owning it yourself. Philip, Van Janos. Baron. Baron. Baron Van Janos. Baron Van Janos. Yeah. Yeah. It's a true thing. He's a Baron of, of Sealand. Of Sealand. That's right. That's yeah. right. I should be showing that. Uh, you know, I mean, Chris, you said this, I think Wendy put a really nice cap on this as well is that, you know, you are the asset, right? And you are probably working in an environment that doesn't realize how hard it's running the machine. And so they will just ask more and more. And as long as you say yes, you will deliver. And some of us are not really good at figuring out when they need to say no, so that I can recharge the batteries and make it there. And these tricks that we can do, you know, not having your phone, I don't do that. I mean, I don't have my phone. I don't look at my phone in the morning. That's not the first thing I do. I don't have an alarm clock. I just wake up when I wake up every day. But that was me putting the, the, where I needed it to be so that like, okay, this encourages me to go to bed on time because I know I won't wake up on time if I don't go to bed on time, right? And that's <laughs> how I kind of typically manage that bit. So, uh, um, so, I, but I think that we all need to realize that the world is trying to get as much out of you as it can. And it's up to you to preserve the you so that you can keep going in this moment. So I think this is a useful conversation. I got lots more questions. Uh, we ran out of time before we ran out of questions. So, well, maybe, thank maybe you. we'll have a part three because I think, you know, it's, Everything about this to me is increasingly central to the consulting industry and practicing consulting. And, you know, for, for people, and we have a lot of people that watch us that are entering consulting or are new in consulting or are lower, lower rungs in consulting. 
And if you don't do these things, this career, it will it will consume you. It will absolutely devour you um, if you don't make time for yourself to make time to to practice these these things to keep yourself resilient because it, it will it will absolutely devour you. But um, that was my non medical. <laughs> I'll leave it to the experts to give us some final thoughts. Uh, Haley, Gavin, what are your, what are your I'll, thoughts? I'll, I'll, let, I'll, let the do- yeah. I'll let the I'll let the doctor go last so she can finish herself. Right? It's really simple as far as I'm concerned. We can all make small changes in our daily routines, and those small changes make a very big difference to enhancing, protecting, maintaining, and when necessary, restoring our mental health and well-being. Small changes make a very big difference. I think, um, I mean, I think it's been invaluable today talking, but I think um, often people um, don't act until it's too late. Um, And I have always, or obviously I would be, wouldn't I? I have been about early intervention and that's just about normalizing these conversations. Um, and the more we just talk openly about it, the more you can learn from people's experiences. There isn't one particular way of doing this. This is about finding what works for you. Um, but I think it's just important to take on board you know, bits of information and try and figure out what works for you in terms of building your resilience um, and building up your own toolkit. Uh, so hopefully there has been some little nugget that you might take away from today. Yeah, no, it's been fantastic. And I think as Phil pointed out, there's so much more here to unpack. <laughs> you know, um, but I won't be doing that anytime in, in the next couple of hours. But I'll be right now. Um, listen, I appreciate it. Uh, Dr. Haley Dare, Gavin Richardson, um, obviously Oliver, Phil, Wendy, I'm Chris Lockhart. Thank you everyone for watching. Um, and we will we'll see you next time. Excellent. Thanks, guys. I want to see, I wanted the final cut of this thing to count your beers. Excellent. Exactly. Double X. That's right. Your equity. Okay. And then just call me Haley, please. <laughs> yeah. So first Dr. reference Haley. was. Yes. Oh, nice. Chris. Luckily they keep coming. <laughs> you know the uncertainty of your professional life on top of it and trying to balance it and then your professional life includes not just co-workers but clients to your point and in, in, in even Haley, what you're saying around the traits and the skills and the assets i think people are attracted that you know we've had podcasts with- there's a there's a chemical change that happens in your body so um it it basically reduces the amount of oxygen that you're taking into your um body um so there's a, the enhancing protecting maintaining and when necessary, restoring our mental health and well-being. Small changes make a very big difference. <laughs> you know, um, but I won't be doing that anytime in the, in the next couple of hours. But I'll be <laughs> right now. Um, yeah, no, that was really good.